Good morning, everyone. Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Today we are in chapter 9, and we will be looking at verses 32 to 43. When asked what Pastor Tim does, little Sam Morris, who's sitting in the cry room, thinks that I fly airplanes because all the important men in his life do that. I think that's cute. A little levity before we dig into the passage. Thank you, Sam. I would fly airplanes if I could. I think it would be loads of fun. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 32. And what's happening here is Peter is being brought back to center stage because some watershed moments are about to occur in the history of redemption, which would be the conversion of Cornelius and the sheet vision, which ensues in the movement of the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. So this is huge, redemptive, historical stuff. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came also down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray today that as we live out our lives in the current context of uh, chaos and challenge and fear and unknown and for many people struggle and loss and grief, we pray that we would hear a sure word from you today. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask that you empower both the one who preaches and the one who hears so that your word may have effect upon us that it may produce in us the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, boundaries are a fact of life. Uh, they are inevitable. 
uh, given the world that we live in. Uh, many people, of course, in recent years have been very concerned about the border, uh, U.S. and Mexico, and uh, historically there have been other walls. The Berlin Wall comes to mind, the symbol of Germany's Cold War division, and it's fallen. The Soviet Union is fractured to pieces as smaller republics, now independent states, have reinstituted the boundaries that once were and once marked them off from Mother Russia. The lines that separate nations and people are unavoidable realities. But not all groupings of people appear on maps. Things like language, race, religion, culture, gender, and age can divide neighborhoods and families. They can also bind people together across vast distances and artificial lines drawn by governments. Robert Frost said there's something there is that doesn't love a wall. But at the same time, his New England neighbor is ready with the adage, good fences make good neighbors. But as we look at it from a biblical perspective, one border throughout history has sort of dwarfed all other borders and boundaries. The boundaries separating faithful commitment and loyalty to God from the unbelieving rebellion against him. Down throughout the centuries of promise, the boundary virtually coincided with the line marking off Israel from the Gentile nations. To be an Israelite was to be in covenant with God. To be a non-Israelite was to be among God's designated enemies. There were exceptions on both sides, of course. Israelites broke covenant by prostituting their devotion before idols. And Gentile aliens, such as Rahab and Ruth and Naaman, were mysteriously drawn to the embrace of the God of Israel. Very much like St. Augustine's idea, second time we've talked about him today, St. Augustine's idea of the city of man and the city of God. However, the generalization stands the borders of Israel were the borders of God's kingdom. The boundaries of Jacob's family were the boundaries of God's people. Boundary markers distinguished um, the nations. Um, they were uh, boundaries of God's people. They distinguished the holy territory of God's covenant from the common sphere of the nations, the goyim. In Hebrew, Gentiles wishing to change allegiance had to submit to the boundary markers. If they became proselytes of Judaism, they had to undergo circumcision, dietary laws, the temple with its sacrifices, and the ritual calendar, especially the law of the Sabbath. In Judaism of the Apostles' time, the Gentiles who underwent ceremonial washings or baptisms were circumcised, they sent a sacrifice to Jerusalem, and shouldered the yoke of Torah, and they were to be regarded as members of Israel's community. They had committed themselves to keeping the Lord's covenant and were to be regarded as Jews in every respect according to leading rabbis of the New Testament era. On the other hand, some Gentiles were merely those who fear God. They were attracted to the synagogue by Judaism's ethical monotheism, but were unwilling to cross the boundary marked by the demand of circumcision, remaining outsiders to the covenant community. 
The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile rooted in God's election of Israel as his own people was higher and more impregnable than the differences, let's say, between the Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews. Yet Philip's evangelism, we've already seen in the book of Acts, of the Samaritans and of the Ethiopian eunuch were the first fissures in the massive wall of division between Jew and Gentile. In the conversion of Cornelius, his friends, and his household, the hand of God himself detonated the charge that dismantled the great wall once and for all. Moreover, the erasure of ethnic, culture, and religious boundaries between Jewish insiders and Gentile outsiders disclosed with clarity the only reason why insiders and outsiders could approach the holy presence of God. We will see later in the council of Acts 15, Peter rehearsed his role in God's call to the Gentiles, declaring the universality of divine grace. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. Only God's mercy, unsought and undeserved by its recipients, can explain the inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God. But the same must be said of the Jews. Abraham's natural descendants, God imprisoned all, Jew and Gentile, to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all, Jew and Gentile. Now, why do I take time to talk about that? Because what Acts is going to do in the next several chapters is show us how that massive wall was detonated, cracked, and fell. And that has implications for our understanding even of the gospel which I will point out as we go along and so today's message is basically God preparing Peter for this task of being an apostle to the Gentiles even though he was primarily an apostle to the Jews Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles but remember this he went to the synagogue everywhere he went first and so the mission given to us in the book of Acts as Christ has told his church to take the gospel uh, to the nations, is beginning to happen. But these are watershed moments in the history of redemption. And so what we're going to see today in the healing of Aeneas, in Dorcas being restored to life, and in even Peter staying at the home of Simon the Tanner, are all indications that God is beginning to prepare Peter who was, as we know from Galatians, struggled with the issue. Think about it. You've lived your whole life in separation from the unclean, uh, from the unwashed. And now, because of the gospel of Christ, all of that has changed. And Peter, being uh, as impressive as he is and as important as he is, is going to be the key person here uh, to see that executed. So... Peter has left the scene for a while, and now he comes back to center stage. Paul is now in Tarsus. He will be there for seven and eight, or eight years. Eventually, Barnabas will go to Tarsus and bring him back to Antioch to begin missionary journeys, which are so familiar. But now, Paul is not the center of the stage. Luke focuses on two other individuals, Peter and Cornelius. The conversion of the latter will occupy most of chapter 10 of Acts. But first, we must pay attention to the other significant apostle in Acts, and that is Peter. 
The last we heard of Peter, he was in Jerusalem where he'd spent two weeks with the newly converted Saul of Tarsus. He remained in Jerusalem together with the rest of the apostles following the outbreak of persecution that scattered so many of the believers to various parts. A period of peace and blessing has now arrived and Peter was on the move. Peter was relatively unknown outside of Jerusalem. The scattered church would have known of him, of course, and some who had fled from Jerusalem would have known him, so something was needed to add to his credentials, as it were, as an apostle among the Gentiles. Peter's raising of a woman called Tabitha, also called Dorcas, which means deer or gazelle of all things, looks strikingly similar to the way in which Eliza raised the son of the widow at Zarephath in the book of First Kings. The effect of both miracles was to underline the divine authority that had been given to these men of God. Before Peter's role in the conversion of Cornelius is described, we are first given a glimpse of his apostolic credentials. And so Peter begins what one might call a large pastoral visitation, or more like a bishop's pastoral visitation. He doesn't tell us much about Peter's motivation in going here and there, but he finally arrives at a place called Lydda. And what did Peter do in these places as he visited? What was his purpose in going there? Undoubtedly, he saw himself responsible for helping the churches in these locations. Some of them were fledgling. Some of them were weak. They needed encouragement. They were struggling. They needed instruction. Given the increase that Luke has related in Acts 9.31, Peter and the church in Jerusalem must have surely been curious to see for themselves what was taking place. Perhaps it wouldn't be too difficult to imagine the scenario. Some of the men in Jerusalem were eager to supervise or control what was taking place beyond the borders of Jerusalem. News that the gospel was spreading rapidly to the Gentiles more so than to the Jews, must have surely caused some kind of alarm system to go off in the synagogues in Jerusalem, let alone those who were still frequenting the temple. Paul would likely have spoken with Peter about his own call to be a witness to the Gentiles, and at a period when exact implications for relationship of the church to Judaism were still in some degree of flux. A visit from an apostle of Peter's stature in Jerusalem would seem all the more necessary. Now, we don't need to underestimate the significance of the pastoral encouragements we see here, as well as uh, for those laboring in missionary situations all throughout uh, the known world, all across the world. Sometimes a well-timed visit for the purpose of encouraging others in ministry can prove to be a turning point. I remember when I moved here in 1988 to plant this particular church, I kind of felt like this. It kind of felt like I was in a plane with a parachute on and a mission to North America flew over Nevada and they said, jump out. Call us if you need us. And so I jumped out. And being so far away and so separated from everything related to the denomination, I truly felt alone. 
But one of the great things that Mission to North America did for me is periodically they would send representatives out to see me and check on me and my family to see how we were doing, to see what the needs were, to see if they could help us troubleshoot some of the problems we were having. Uh, one of them in particular was a man by the name of Phil Clark who lived in Laguna Niguel, and he would come up uh, often uh, especially to help. And I have to tell you, there were times when I thought about packing it up and going, but for these guys coming, sometimes a word, just somebody's presence can help you when you're under burdens of ministry or anything else. And so Luke refers to the believers whom Peter uh, visits as saints the set-apart ones, the holy ones. And uh, it's, it's marvelous to see uh, the high pl- uh, premium that the New Testament places upon those who believe in the Lord Jesus. Um, we are saints relationally. One day we will be saints uh, in total. We will uh, certainly be glorified and glorious before the Lord. Now think about a place like Lydda. It's 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem, just over halfway to the coastal town of Joppa. I was reading R.C. Sproul's uh, work on this particular chapter, and he said Joppa means beautiful. He said he had been to Joppa. He said it wasn't so beautiful. So I don't know. I've never been to Joppa. But apparently that's where it was a coastal town. It was a capital, one of the ten top archies or seats of local government in one of the Judean districts. Joppa, which is modern Jaffa, is a suburb of Tel Aviv, and it was a profitable port city in the Mediterranean coast. Luke has already given us a clue of how these churches came into being. Probably Philip was preaching the gospel through this area. Philip found himself at Azotus as he passed through, and he probably preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Lydda and Joppa were most likely among these cities. And so we know that uh, the Hellenistic mission that Philip was engaged in was probably responsible for churches being here. In both of these cities, Lydda and Joppa, Peter performed a spectacular miracle. In Lydda, he encountered a man who had been sick, that is paralyzed, for eight years in Joppa. Think about yourself being paralyzed for eight years wherever you live. Think about life as it must have been, how helpless he must have felt, how difficult existence was from day to day, how he couldn't be productive, he couldn't do anything uh, to fulfill responsibilities. And so he's sick for eight years. In the other case, he encounters a woman who was already dead. She was sick and died. In both cases, Peter performs a miracle that on the one hand would have huge evangelistic impact upon the community and on the other hand confirmed to them his credentials as an apostle. The man's name in Lydda was Aeneas and the account is very brief. And so Peter comes down to the saints there. He finds Aeneas bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you rise and make your bed. Chuck Swindoll said he couldn't have been a teenager because he would have never made the bed. I don't know about that. But 
I know adults that don't make the bed. I'm one of them. I'm repenting of it in front of you, maybe. All right. Aeneas got up immediately. The paralysis was physical and lasted for eight years, but the healing, which enables this man to rise up and walk and make his own bed, and those were huge things. Think about it. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you were paralyzed for eight years, you immediately got up, it, it, you would want to jump for joy. You'd probably have energy like never before. And so he does these things. And the miracle is remarkably similar to one that Jesus performed in Capernaum in Mark chapter 2. In Capernaum, remember, it took four men to carry the paralytic onto the roof of Peter's home. And when they managed to remove a section of the roof large enough to lower the stretcher without the man falling out of it, Jesus commanded the man to get up, pick up his bed, and walk. These are what are called miracles of reversal in which the effects of sin and the fall are reversed and a glimpse, just a glimpse, of the new creation is given. It is meant to convey, in what we might call, in an eschatological sense, the nature of what Jesus had ultimately come to do, to restore a broken, cursed creation. In the new heavens and the new earth, where all the effects of sin have been removed, there will be no place for disease or paralysis. Jesus makes it very clear, which incensed the Jewish officials who were present, that his primary work was to provide the means for the forgiveness of sins. He asked them which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise, pick up your bed, and walk. Peter, on the other hand, could make no such contrast. It did not lie within Peter's authority to forgive sins. He was not the Messiah, Jesus was. But like Jesus, Peter employed a miracle that demonstrated much more than the onlooker's physical senses could take in. As the healing of the physically blind conveyed that Jesus gives spiritual sight to those who are spiritually blind, and the multiplication of the loaves and fishes pointed to Jesus as the bread of life, so too this miracle acted as a sign. Jesus can lift up drooping hands and strengthen weak knees and make paths straight for feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. These miracles should help us see that one day in the resurrection glory, all sickness and disease will be eradicated. In the world to come, there will be no disabilities to hinder us. We will have new glorious bodies remade to function as they were intended to without the debilitating effects of sin that now characterize the physical world. It is a longing that even inanimate creation itself longs for, groaning, as it were, in the pains of childbirth, the Apostle Paul tells us, as it anticipates the new creation. So remember that these miracles are pointing to the penetration of the powers of the age to come into the present time. Why doesn't Jesus fix stuff? He's fixing stuff. The kingdom of God is here. It is now. It is inaugurated. And because of that, Jesus is bringing about that restoration. Ultimately, that restoration will come culminate in the ultimate reality of the new heavens and the new earth. And the older I get, the more I want to be there. The more it appeals to me. The older I get, 
the more dying and go to, going to heaven looks like a good deal. It really does. When I was young, I didn't want to go. You know, uh, uh, but now I'm ready by God's grace. Now, let's look at the other miracle at Joppa. It was even more spectacular. So we have a woman named Tabitha who had become sick, and Peter arrives, uh, uh, as Peter arrives, and she died. It's an Aramaic name because his readers would be uh, unfamiliar with it. Luke provides the Greek equivalent, Dorcas. Both names mean gazelle. Tabitha's death occurred when Peter was still in Lydda, some 10 miles away. Some people say it was a brisk two-hour walk. That's a brisk walk. Believers from Joppa heard that Peter was in Lydda, so they urged him to come to Joppa to do something about this without delay. Now, I, I have to wonder what they were expecting Peter to do. Uh, the woman was already dead, and certainly he's not Jesus. And they had laid her out in the upper room of her home, and so they had done preparations for burial. Raising the dead was a rare phenomenon, even in Jesus' ministry. Only three instances are recorded. In Acts so far, there have been none. Were they really expecting and anticipating that Peter would restore her to life? And why did they expect that Peter was especially the capable, was capable of doing something so extraordinary at all? Had they heard about the paralytic who had been healed? Uh, healing a paralytic is different than raising the dead. Uh, somebody asked me one time, why did I want to be a church planter? I said, well, it's easier to birth a baby than it is to raise the dead. And some churches are dead, and it's, it's hard to raise the dead, easier to birth a baby. Uh, but here's Peter's in this situation. Had news already traveled 10 miles away that Peter had some sort of power that was miraculous? So he arrives, and he was taken to the upper room where her body was laid. And there were weeping widows holding in their hands the garments that Tabitha had made for them. This indicates she was probably a wealthy person. Uh, you wouldn't have time to make garments for other people if you weren't. Perhaps as a result of their emotionally charged state, the widows were ushered out of the room, leaving Peter alone with the body. But Jesus did the same thing in the uh, raising of Jairus' daughter. So there was great sadness. Her friends, widows for whom she'd made the garment, uh, that is long garments worn next to the skin, were weeping over the loss of the one who they loved, who displayed a life full of good works and acts of charity. Tabitha's loss was felt all the more keenly by the church in which she was an example of faithfulness and piety. She was a key member. She was a beacon of light in the Joppin church. And now she's gone, laid out on her bed, body cold, already displaying signs of the effects of death. The gazelle was now a lifeless corpse. Peter ushered these women out of the room, and he next did something that at one level was absurd, and another level was a deliberate echo of Jesus. He spoke to the body. And he said, Tabitha, arise. Now, the uh, most important thing to understand, when Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, her name was Talitha, with an L. Here, this name is Tabitha. Jesus said, Tabitha kumi, that's Aramaic. 
Peter probably, because her name is Aramaic, said Tabitha Kumi. Very interesting. Very interesting. Apparently that information was communicated because Jesus was alone when he did that. And the words are so similar, some people think it was a, a scribal mistake. I don't. But at Peter's declaration, Tabitha came to life. Peter had never done this before. And we wonder what must have gone through his mind when he saw her eyes open and her lungs expand to take in air. Peter, as in Jesus' raising of Jairus' daughter, had sent everybody out of the room. But unlike Jesus, Peter had fallen to his knees to pray. He could not, as our Lord had done, merely speak the word as though power were native to him. Peter merely speaks the word as, as, as uh, not like Jesus, who was God incarnate. Peter's powers were a gifting of the Savior's, and the ability to perform any miracle was dependent upon the will of his master. And so Tabitha's eyes opened. Peter's heart must have floated, uh, flooded, not floated, flooded, with joy and certitude, reassuring him of his calling. Uh, and as an apostle, his uh, calling of the Lord in a more basic level, reassuring him of the veracity of the Christian faith founded upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the Messiah, and faith in Jesus was decidedly not delusional. Now, as a result of all this, something more happens here. Um, we live in a world that seems to think there's some sort of blind and mechanistic control of genes and laws of nature, but the book of Acts presents us with an entirely different worldview in which God steps in and changes things, changes things radically. Just when you think things are bad and headed for worse, he converts the key player in the opposition, Saul. He restores to health Aeneas at Lydda, raises a much-loved woman in Joppa. God does this. Jesus is directing the course of this world, and his eye is always fixed upon his church, always fixed upon his church. But there was a lesson here especially for Peter. There was a reason God enabled Peter to raise uh, a dead person to life here and nowhere else. Something was about to occur that would require Peter to be on board when otherwise his natural prejudices and biases might have caused him to balk. The next incident in the book of Acts is the conversion of Cornelius, a Gentile Roman soldier. Peter was asked to minister to this man, and in the process was shown something of immense theological importance. The distinction between clean and unclean foods was now abolished and obsolete. One of the sacred boundary markers of the Jews was about to be thrown down. Despite being told three times that he was no longer to consider any food ceremonially unclean, for a man had never eaten bacon in his whole life, he's still pondering the vision as though he could scarcely believe what he's being told. It may be difficult for us to imagine how large this issue was for him. What would the Jews in Jerusalem, even Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, make of this? Even if 
the diaspora Jews might be a little more lenient, which is doubtful. Peter's authority outside of Jerusalem was not that certain. We know that Peter later struggles with this issue in Antioch because he suddenly refrained from eating with Gentiles in the face of a visit from influential heavyweights from Jerusalem. But Peter was rebuked by Paul. Perhaps that's why he is given the ability to raise Tabitha. The miracle would have corrobor corroborated his authority as an apostle, vindicating him in a way that otherwise would have been seen as an act of betrayal to have given Cornelius, a Roman soldier of some standing, and a Gentile no less, the prominence. Third, Luke here again mentions the mercy ministry Tabitha was engaged in. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Dorcas is described as a mathetria, that is a female disciple. There's no need to suggest that there was any ordination or office here, since that's not what is in view. She is an example of what women have done throughout the centuries and continue to do, showing acts of practical kindness and mercy to those who are in need in the congregation. She was known for being full of good works. Luke makes mention of her sowing. She's an example of what every Christian, men as well as women, should be doing in the church. You know, some of us are so preoccupied and navel-gazing that we can't think beyond the end of our nose. And we don't ever look around and see that other people are hurting, other people are broken. Now, to the contrary, I see many people doing this. But some of us are still so self-absorbed and caught up in our own stuff and everything's about me and I didn't get anything out of the sermon today and I don't know whether it's worth going back. Well, people who, in whom the Spirit of God is at work and sanctification is occurring are, by the love of Christ, driven out of themselves. Luther said our problem is we're all curved in on ourselves. That is the fall. That's what happened. Where we only have the ability to sin. <laughs> We're all curved in on ourselves. And as God's love melts our heart through the person and work of Christ, we are driven out of ourselves to do good works for others. Not to get credit, not to appear good, not to be, get applause, not to have the praise of men, or not even to win the approval of God, but rather being impelled out. And so Dorcas had engaged in a ministry uh, to the needy in her own church. But the final thing I wanted to point out this morning, which you would easily read over and pass by, guess where Peter stayed in Joppa? He stayed with a man named Simon the Tanner. Simon is what? A Gentile name. A tanner does what? Deals with dead animals. If you deal with dead animals, what are you? Ceremonially unclean. So you got the arch Jew, Peter, who goes on this road trip and ends up spending the night, maybe a couple of days, with a tanner who dealt with de dead animals. Do you think God was beginning to show him things have changed? Things have changed, Peter. Look. And he begins to deal. You know, 
A lot of us are just happy with Jesus to save our soul so that we can go to heaven when we die. But we don't want him messing around in our personal life. And we don't want him messing around with who I'm supposed to love and who I'm supposed to minister to and who I'm supposed to care about. I don't want to be have to have to deal with unloving and unlovely and unlovable people. I'd rather just be comfortable. I'd rather just hang out with the people I like who like me and enjoy that. But no, God is showing Peter that there are needy people everywhere. I'd like to believe that Simon the Tanner probably became a convert. I have no proof of it, but I would love to see it. And so we see in this continuing saga and epic of the book of Acts, God preparing his man for a huge thing. The reason why this is so important, you and I sitting here today, who are more than likely mostly Gentile, I don't know that for sure, but I would guess that, are in the kingdom today because of what God did in the life of Peter to take the gospel and break down the wall. Jesus has separated the middle partition between Jew and Gentile through his reconciling death. The gospel is for everyone. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for Acts chapter 9. We thank you for these little vignettes regarding the life of Peter and your preparation of him and some of the irony of your preparation of him as he begins to engage and do ministry among people that he had always regarded as outsiders. Father, we pray that you would work deeply in our hearts today to show us how we can minister to outsiders. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.